What's up, everybody? Welcome to the debut edition of Chop Talk, where we talk chop on 80s horror. I am your host, David, and I could only have one person here to join me on this adventure. He is the MJF of the LOC, Mr. Kurt Morrison. How are you, brother? Good morning. How you doing, man? I am excited. Oh my God! The day of reckoning has come. Yes, man. and we are finally, finally launching Chop Talk for all you listeners out there. I am very excited. This is something I've been looking forward to for a very long time. The idea actually came to mind during our first conversation. Actually, uh, yeah. we you had mentioned that you know whenever I want to talk eighties horror on a podcast, <laughs> cut, like invite you on, and then my brain started moving, and I was like, yeah. why don't I just like start a new podcast i talk about 80s horror enough i'm like why why not and i think what what really drew me was the fact that you are into the obscure like i am absolutely and i'm like you know what? i think this is a perfect way not just for us to discuss 80s horror but for us to educate those that may not know some of the 80s horror films that you know outside of halloween nightmare on elm street friday the 13th i think this is a good forum for us to discuss the movie that we're going to discuss today actually uh I think I couldn't find a better movie to dive headfirst than 1989's Brian Uzana's Society. Um, Before we get into it, and I'll give I'll give new listeners a rundown of how we're going to run the podcast going forward. What got you into 80s horror? Like, what made it stand out for you? Oh man. The, the the seeds are very deep, Dave boy. Um, so this here's a weird kind of short anecdote, short and sweet anecdote. Uh, grew up just outside Toronto, Ontario, and there was this video store. I'm talking like 200 meters away from where I grew up. And they had, this is back in the 90s when, when VHS was, was our jam. Oh, yeah. Um, but they had the, the most obscure, random uh horror movies that that i could think of so so it was a tradition it was really a tradition with with my buddies and i growing up um and particularly my best friend growing up and and we went nuts man at probably around like age 10 or 11 like we dove into the 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 blunt of like the 80s classics but then started finding like really really like dark and deep stuff and i'm so su- I'm, honestly i'm surprised that society never came up through that entirety uh of us going to this particular uh, video store uh, and like again i'd heard of it but you know we got into night of the demons we got into to creep show we got into all those ones that like are kind of like you know middle ground well known um but yeah that that's kind of where it all started man and and, and my love for it has always kind of been there but there's nobody really been to uh i've, I've had nobody really to shoot the shit with about it yeah, and uh, it's it's fun i'm i'm so excited for this guys we really just want to uh, bring to light some like some classics and, and kind of relive a few of them uh, in future episodes. But as you said perfectly, is is the idea of bringing to light a lot of a lot of ones that um, might have gone through the cracks uh, and have these like huge cult uh, cult um, where am I for there cult status yes cult followings yes. and cult status and such. But uh, yeah yeah we'll, we'll we'll get to them as we go month by month here on Drop Talk. So. Yeah I I like I totally agree with you. I think I have the same kind of history like yeah. uh the first horror movie I I was I was I was 9 years old. Uh, it was 1995. Cool. I had just come home from trick or treating. Cool. I um walked into USA Network with the end of Halloween 1. And I was like, great. I'm like, this this is cool. I would say probably the last five minutes, but then Halloween 2 started. 
and that's the one that I sat down and watched first. And mm-hmm. I'm like, this is awesome. I don't know if I should be watching this at nine years old, but I'm like, <laughs> fuck it. Let's just let's just go. And then the trajectory started where I would similar situation. I had a whole ton of video stores. For anyone listening that doesn't know what a video store was, a video store uh, is by the way, a, a, a little location that you would go to on a Friday <laughs> night and give someone money for you to take out yeah. a videotape for you to watch at home. Uh, you do Sunday morning by eleven o'clock. Yes, I I what drew me to horror, especially eighties horror, were the, vi- the the covers. Yes, that's how. Oh yeah, like I would say the '80s horror films had some of the best covers. No matter if the movie was good or not, I would always be attracted to some of the covers that I saw, and that's kind of what led me down the the Friday the Thirteenth range, the Nightmare on Elm Street, because they had such original covers. And Reanimator, that's another oh, one that I found. Um, there's so many great VHS covers, and then as time has progressed, I became such an enthusiastic person towards the genre and in similar fashion not a lot of people to talk to about it i gotta say my palette has grown to the more obscure over the past maybe five to ten years and i think a lot of that's helped shout out to the last drive-in with joe bob briggs because they have touched on a lot of 80s movies that i had never seen before and i was like okay frank and hooker stuff like that (laughs) that's actually how i found society Uh, (laughs) yeah I'm one of the first, I think season one or, yeah, I think season one of, of The Last Drive-In, and I'm like, oh, this is very interesting. I had mm. always heard about it, and now when I saw it, I was like, okay, now I know why I've heard about it. Mm. Uh, it is one of the most unique horror films I've seen, but that pretty much takes us to our first category. So how we're going to run this podcast is we're going to run a few categories where we discuss the ins and outs of the film. Uh, And if you guys will, listeners will tell they are based on other franchises and films. So the first category that we have that we will be touching every month will be Steve Christie's campfire. So here we're going to have a general discussion of the first view of the film and thoughts before deep diving into the production and the character of the film. So Kurt, I'll let you take it away. This is the first watch for you. So do your do your thing, man. Do your thing. David, my boy. Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> so Thursday afternoon, I go to Apple TV. and Actually, first and foremost, I, I looked up and I was like, how to watch Society 1989. Apple TV, of all things, was the place that I could rent it at uh, for, for a mere 99 cents, folks. What a steal. Um <laughs> Yeah, man, you, you did me dirty. We we didn't just we didn't just start start in the deep end. You you strapped a rock to my foot and threw me in the deep end. <laughs> Guys, I can't even begin to explain to you um, how off the wall and and un, unfamiliar a film like Society was. And again, like I had heard this through the grapevine. And this is actually one thing that I was going to mention to you too was uh, In Search of Darkness, which is the Shudder. Love that documentary adore them all three yep. of them adore them um and and you know they, they've mentioned this film in passing and i was like oh okay that looks kind of cool and again i haven't seen that for for several years but um i go into this and i i'm like i, I was actually quite enthralled by it and like it had my attention my mm-hmm. phone aside and everything because i didn't know what i was watching um thoughts on on the film as an entirety it's like you know when you go on a roller coaster <laughs> and the you're going up that first big hill or the first big drop and the, the drop's like, Oh, okay. Like if you're sitting at the back, you don't know when the drop is actually going to happen. But 70 minutes of this film is like that workup yeah. to the drop. And then the last 20 minutes of this guys is absolutely batshit bonkers to a point where you can't take your eyes off the screen 
because it's unlike anything you've ever watched before. And I say that actually as a compliment, not like a, this is so ridiculous that I wanted to turn off. Like I had fun with this film. It, it's incredibly, and I get why it has this cold status. It's incredibly rewatchable just because it's so out to left field, completely out to left field. How about yourself? Dan? Yeah, for me, it was kind of the same boat I had. It felt and it felt like I was watching a horror version of 90210. It felt very eighties. <laughs> like we were yeah. in the decade. We were and um as the movie progressed, similar to you, I felt like I was on a date, right? And we're having a great time, you know, we're we had a great dinner, we went to a movie, and then we get to the end of the night where does does she get a good night kiss? Does she slap me for trying to give her a good night kiss? <laughs> And the last 20 minutes of society are a bit of both. Yeah. Like, I, I went for that goodnight kiss, but I got slapped and I liked it. <laughs> and then you're like, no, do it again. Like, do it again. <laughs> I could not. First off, I was like, why has no one ever talked about the magnificence of the practical effects in that last yeah. 20 minutes? I hear, Absolutely. and, you know, we're going to get to it a little later, but, mm. you know, we hear the fly and we hear the thing in terms of, like, the the top tier of practical effects in the 80s and body horror but this is when we get into it it is something (sighs) i immediately said to myself how many people can i talk to watching this movie because (laughs) it's one of those like they're gonna think they are in in the clear for 90 for about 70 minutes and they're like oh this is this is good this is like pretty interesting it's an you know it's about the rich and the poor so on or living in the hollywood hills and then boom boom yeah and and then it hits and then your jaw hits the floor being like is this actually on my screen is this actually happening or am i like our old billy boy warlock here in the movie oh yeah am i am i hallucinating am i actually experiencing what is happening before my eyes uh and it is a roller coaster it's it's fun guys it's absolutely it's a blast like i can't i can't say enough and echo enough that like this is a movie where you turn your brain off if you are critical throw it out the window just enjoy this for what it is meant to be oh yeah i agree and i think we can take a critical aspect to the movie in terms of what the actual end of the movie means like i think there's a good allegory to where where it's going and we'll talk about that later but like if you read the premise of the movie and this is what i love about 80s horror especially something like society that i have the premise here and reading the premise to you you'll never think where we end up going so society follows bill whitney as a troubled 17-year-old from a rich Beverly Hills family whose belief that he doesn't belong sets him on the path to discover his relative secret. I, I don't and think... Yeah. Folks. Yeah. It, it's, the t- it's not even the tip of the iceberg. It's the tip of the tip. There's a lot of tips. <laughs> There's a lot of tips. Um, a lot of tips. Um, it's funny because one of the scenes that I did see prior to watching the movie was the butthead. Yes, that we're gonna, you know, get into the practical effects later. But mm-hmm. when um, I spoke to someone that had seen it, they had told me that's not even the worst of it. And yeah, boy, were they right. Um, boy, were they right. Oh, and yeah. I credit to get credit to the director because if you look at the opening, I've seen this movie many times already. But if you look at the opening credits, they actually tease the final thirty minutes. So when you rewatch the movie and you see it, they're actually having that interaction in the opening credits but you would not have known that that's where they end up uh so yeah 
that wraps up the first category, which is Steve's Chrissy's Campfire. We are moving on to the actual deep dive of the film with the Haddonfield Herald, where we are going to look at some of the production notes and box office and any awards. And yes, this movie actually did win awards. Present. Yes. So... <laughs> Brian Uzana is actually no best known outside of society as the producer of Reanimator. That's another reason I brought it up before. Uh, he held the rights to a sequel to Reanimator, and he could find, um, but could not find financing. Once he was able to, he was able to use having the rights to Reanimator to create Bride of the Reanimator uh, as a two picture deal, where he was actually able to direct society. Uh, it's. Very interesting the way things worked in the 80s that he owned the rights to it and he held them and he was able to get that two picture deal. I have you seen Bride of the Reanimator? I didn't see Bride of the Reanimator, it's, I didn't know Bride of the it's, Reanimator existed. It's not good, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we made so it's not on like our top level, like re-animator. I, don't, I don't, I don't even think it's one of those like we'll have fun watching. Yeah. Reanimator is just such a classic, oh, absolutely. Uh, but yeah. Production wise, you had a great, and I had it in my notes, but I'm glad you brought it up in when your introductory post. So the movie was released on June 12, 1989, but it was boycotted for three years mm-hmm. and released in London on June 11, 1992. Is there anything else you found regarding that three year gap? Um, no. So I actually went d- uh, digging in regards to b- besides the boycott, why it had not actually even hit like a VHS release. Because again, remember at the time. Um, this is again the, the kind of peak of the late eighties and early nineties. This is when uh our blockbuster videos were around. Uh and, and up in Canada here, Jumbo Video, Rogers Video, like um and a lot of movies, again, surprisingly, uh never actually went to theatrical release, right? There was a huge, huge market for the VHS um copies of these films. So my thought process would have been, oh, okay, well then, you know, maybe gotten a release somewhere in the world but no as you said dave to echo what you said there like it literally sat on a shelf for three years man like this thing got trapped in like release hell for for whatever reason other than boycotting and i don't know if the boycotting was because of how grotesque it is and and obviously like um the the kind of the finale of the movie i guess we can call it because there's nothing else really in the movie that that would, would steer it towards being like that bad but did you find anything no, I actually, that's pretty much it, that the th- there was a three-year gap in release. Yeah. I I agree with you. I've seen movies that have been boycotted. Like, yeah. the, the most popular, iconic example is Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. And uh, have you seen that movie? Yes. Yes. I I, I understand. I truly yeah. understand. It is, <laughs> it, is, it is a movie I think we'll be covering one day, but it is, um, it is a movie. And it oh, does yeah. have film, and it does have a lot of things going on. But that one, I understand why it was boycotted. This is... In an era where things were as grotesque as some, like the fly and the thing, I'm really shocked that that's this is one that fell under the rug and you know didn't see the light of day. Probably, and honestly, it has one of the best movie posters of the '80s. I I really enjoy the cover art to to the poster. Um, in terms of awards, the one thing I couldn't find, and I dug out, I could not find the box office for this movie. So I just did it before we popped on, man. Um, so uh, on the numbers.com, the only thing that comes up for it, and it, there's there's no weekend box office, there's no uh, 1992 box office. Or, sorry, there's no 89 or 92. Uh, but it gives me the Blu-ray sales, Blu-ray uh, and video sales. I guess when it was released in, let me just double check here, it got a release in 2005 
on the uh, DVD and Blu-ray, and it was only a million dollars. So again, I, it's kind of that like typical kind of cult. Well, I mean, like very low cult film where um, it probably made the producers a million bucks, you know, ten or fifteen years afterwards on on some like special edition Blu-ray. But yeah, it's the only thing I could dig up on it, man. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the numbers been tough on this one. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think after it hit Joe Bob, I think. A lot. I've I've seen more people talk about it now, which is yeah. good. Uh, in terms of awards, this actually was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best DVD Blu-ray Special Edition Release. Really? At also at the Brussels International Festival of Fantasy Film, it actually won Best Makeup. I'm not shocked there. Yeah. And at the, I'm I'm not even gonna I'm gonna. <laughs> I know exactly what you're putting right now, and I'm not even gonna say anything. You're not gonna. You're not gonna save me here. All right, I'm, cool. Nope, <laughs> let's nah, let's, do, let's, let's do this. Sightgus, guys. There you go. I'm gonna, I like yours better. Okay. All Catalonian right. International <laughs> Film Festival, 1989. It was nominated for best film. Yep. I want. I want to see the rest of those nominations. If this is nominated for for best film, I, want, I wonder what other batshit crazy movies were uh, were nominated that year. <laughs> yeah, like Batman. So. Yeah, society yeah. some of the yeah. halloween five the revenge halloween of michael five. myers for sure for sure uh but yeah that wraps up that section moving on to howarth alan howarth school of sound here we break down the score soundtrack of the film now the music of the, the music and the score was done by mark Ryder, but i don't think there's real really a lot within the score that stands out there are a few things that do stand out but you're gonna say something kurt yeah so i i went digging into mark Ryder and phil davies um and, and to see what else they had actually done um and they've only got uh two other movies two other movies to their credit Tra- transfers one and transfers two i have never fucking heard of these movies in my life but there is three sequels apparently to this to this or i should say there's three movies in the franchise transfers one transfers two transfers three um and these two fellas have quite the following on youtube by the looks of it uh, did you dig, any, dig anything up there? No, not at all. So this is all news to me. Ah, all right, all right. I like now, this. These guys have been doing um, for a little while here. Let me just double check. They've been doing music on YouTube for, um, I, I don't know if it's, it's optioning the rights or so on and so forth, but they basically have like a, uh, a page called Vinyl Frontier Plus. And yeah, you can basically buy music off of them if you wanted to through, through what seems like it's an online store. But Trancers. Boys have been keeping busy with trancers. And uh trancers sounds a lot like the music of society. I'm just yeah. giving you guys a heads up. I full credit gives to both Davies and Ryder on the yeah. they reworked the version of the E Tom boating song, the school song from the pre- prestigious eating school. Yep. With the the lyrics it ran was a hysterical bend. I love that theme. Um I can't find it anywhere. I've actually been wanting to to just add it to my gym rotation, uh, as odd as I am. <laughs> Man, Kurt, my gym yeah, rotation. My my gym rotation. I, I literally have a whole bunch of horror scores and film scores, and it is <laughs> like, uh, listen, the Halloween three score slaps when you're when you're lifting. <laughs> I I, I I promise you In the that. Little bench press set seriously just banging and clanging to uh, the Halloween three. Soundtrack. It's it's good shit, man. Uh, and then the other thing is. Um, now, society taught me that there is a double feature out there that I think horror horror and cinephile aficionados need to do. Society followed by 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
So why? Know. Why? So why am I you asking? The blue, the blue Danube waltz. Okay. That's played during the shall we call it the shunting scene? We'll call it the shunting. Yes. Is um also played in 2001: A Space Odyssey. Uh, really? yes. So a friend of the show, Jack, reached out to to yes. both of us actually, but he uh yeah. he knows how how big of a Kubrick fan I am, and he's like, yeah. I'll never look at Blue Danube again the same the same again, and I'm like. Yeah. No nah, man, you, we have a double feature on our hands, man. <laughs> like we, you, the crazy up, kids, the craziness of society to the I don't even know what to call 2001 except the the acid trip of Kubrick. Like the, <laughs> yeah. it, it, that is perfect. But you know, I actually love the use of the blue Danube walls in in that scene. As weird as I sound for that, it I, does it add a level of prestige to the events going on. Yeah it it makes you think to yourself. Oh, maybe what I'm witnessing isn't all that grotesque, um, because there's like this aura of or, or, or air of, um, uh, you know, suaveness mm-hmm. to it and debonair as you're watching somebody's insides get ripped out. Um, so it's like it's like putting a it's like putting a, a flower on top of a turd. It yes. still makes it a turd, but nevertheless, it, it's, it makes you think: Was this really going on in the Hollywood Hills in the 1980s? Exactly. Get your mind going. Seriously, uh, but yeah, not really much else on the score and the music. I mean, it's very much what what uh, what Kurt had mentioned, and then the shout out to the Blue Danube Waltz. But is there anything else you wanted to add to the music, or that's pretty much it? No, I mean, like it it it, it, it in no way suffers from like the usual like eighties um, score tropes, right? Like you've got your your high synthesizer, you've got your 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 shock, you know, like type of thing that we all saw through the Halloweens and through the, uh, the nightmare on Elm streets and, and so on and so forth. Um, it's a, it's a product of its time. Uh, yeah. and I, and I think it suits it. it. I think it totally suits it. The score and the soundtrack, uh, as we're saying with, by Davies and, uh, Oh my God, I forgot his name already. Davies and writer. Uh, it, it, it's a product of its time. Uh, and it, and it does, it does a good job. It does. It's, it fits it completely. It's, I lo- I like where you ended there because I felt like the score of society was starting to transition away from the eighties score tropes. Mm-hmm. And we transitioned to whatever the '90s ended up becoming with with horror. Yeah, um, yeah. I am a sucker for synths, so uh, yeah, yeah. David David were bonding over uh, so much. Uh, Alan <laughs> Alan Howarth, who doesn't get enough credit for for yeah. some of the stuff he did in the '80s, man. Like his synths are fire. Like mm-hmm. I, I can't wait to discuss some more scores with him later on. We, I was gonna say that name next, sounds very familiar with oh, something yes. coming up on the next episode, uh, buddy. I have a feeling next month's episode, we're going to dive a little bit more into the score. Yep. Yo, absolutely. I, I cannot wait for um, – we're going to discuss it at the end, but as two big wrestling fans, this is oh. – uh, next month is going to be a fun one. Oh, next next month, the wheels are coming off the show already. Oh, yes. <laughs> we may we may have an eight-minute scene where we just fight through through uh, 100%. Through, through Skype and yep. with with no dialogue, just, just – ugh. Ooh, uh, uh, ugh. <laughs> But yeah, let's move on to Elm Street's kids. And here we're actually breaking down some of the cast and crew in the film. So there's no way we can start talking about the cast without talking our boy, without without talking about our boy Billy Warlock. Billy Warlock, my man. Um, oh, I... you, let me ask you this before we just go on our because I have a few things to say. Do you like him as a lead? I think that so our our buddy Jack Jack Renault on the League of Cinephiles, uh, he brought up a really good point. If you close your eyes at points, it's like you're listening to Michael J. Fox. Yeah, I genuinely believe that that Billy Warlock could have had 
quite a career, more than a career that he had. Because I, I, I don't by his MD, IMDb, uh, I don't he, believe that there was a hell of a lot other than Baywatch yes, after this. That's actually the big uh, doing my research on it. That's his big, <laughs> big uh, role after this. And like, uh, you know, likable, charismatic. I mean, not a great actor, but that's okay. But nevertheless, like, he's a good-looking dude, man. And I, I genuinely think that, like, you know, if if maybe this hadn't been the thing that started the ball rolling, I think he could have had a, a much bigger career. I like him. Let me put it this way. Like, yeah. To answer your question, I like. I, I I do too. Um, but and I agree with you. Good-looking guy played the you know fit the role well. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can say he was fleshed out as all as a character. No, because uh, when we get we discover that you know he was he was adopted that he wasn't really part of the the rich the high the, you know the elite the 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 elite class of the film, um, but he not only was he on Baywatch, I did discover that he was also in another '80s horror film. Get to it! I was, you beat me to it. Let's go. Halloween 2. Yep. Which is awesome because Halloween 2 is the first one that I've ever seen. So this is actually a nice little callback. Um, Some fun facts I found about him. He has that sex scene early on in the movie. He was actually hesitant to show his bare ass during the scene. Um, (laughs) The the scene was scheduled late into production. He was able to uh, refuse a shot without being fired. He jokingly claimed he doesn't have a nice butt. I don't know. And I, I, this actually piggybacks exactly into who I wanted to talk about most after. Um, you want to go to her after? Let's go to her after. I, and by the way, so the, do you know the reason why Billy Warlock was cast in Halloween 2? No. Why? His son, did, or sorry, his father, pardon me. His father, pardon me. I screwed that up. His father is Dick Warlock. Yes. And Dick Warlock plays Michael, Michael Myers. Myers. In Halloween too, so That's there's your awesome. the full circle, kids. Also, so, Billy yeah. uh, Dick Warlock is also in Halloween three as one of the robots. That, so yeah, yep. Dick Warlock is well renowned as one of the best stuntmen of the eighties. So that yeah, is, man. there's a scene in Halloween two that I always shows like we talk about who the best ho- Michael Myers. This is completely off topic, but mm-hmm. um, who the best Michael Myers is, and there's a scene in Halloween two that because I think Dick Warlock is in like the top two, yeah, uh, where he towards the end of the movie he's chasing Laura and he's going down the stairs but it continues to look straight without looking down at the stairs <laughs> so in an interview uh during the making of the film Dick Warlock said that he went down the stairs multiple times to count them so he memorized how many stairs there were so when he was shooting the shot he was able to just keep it straight and keep the count in his head so yeah. it looks more like Myers is just like a, a a being that knows all pretty pretty awesome dedication for a stuntman right yeah right? so Wanted to wanted to plug that out, but yeah, Billy Warlock probably best known to anyone outside of me and you for Baywatch. He was Baywatch. on there for I think eighty five episodes or something yes. along those yeah, lines. Man. So he had a the, big the run. Peak of it, peak of it when when you got Pam Anderson, when you got Yasmin Bleeth, you got I think Carmen Electra on on her her kind of uh, introduction. Um, he's one of the main guys, man. Besides besides Hasselhoff, it's, it's kind of him, Hasselhoff, and the. Um, the other fellow there whose who's name eludes me, but full, it doesn't really matter. Full disclosure, I was a big Baywatch guy. Uh, yeah, you and I both, yeah. you and yeah. I both. And, yeah, when, and, when, and when they had wrestlers on the show, even better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so random. Oh, Hogan and Savage. Yeah, it was just so random. And and, and yeah. then I think they were in ring gear. Like, well, yep. 
you go to the beach and you see just random big wrestlers in ring gear. I'm like, why are you in ring gear? What's going on here? Only the at 90s the, television. At the height of the NWO, Macho Man Randy Savage is walking around on the Baywatch set in his NWO gear so on a Venice beach, like 120 degree Fahrenheit day. It just makes no sense, but I'm here for it. Sign oh, me up. Same so. here. So I'm going to skip a few characters to talk about the one that Kurt wants to talk about. Are we talking oh. about Devin DeVasquez? Devin DeVasquez. Go for it. I'll, I'll let you take oh. over. She stole my heart in this movie. Um, so, folks, I'm just I'm gonna <laughs> two things here. Uh, Devin Devasquez was a former Playboy playmate, okay, mm-hmm. uh, and <laughs> she became kind of a hot commodity in the mid '80s. Um, also, apparently dated Prince for a short little while. And one, yeah. do you did you know the other person she dated? Who's the other one? I, I was looking. Sylvester for- Stallone. Really? Yes, 1989. Oh. Wow. Okay. Okay. Again, hey, the resume, uh, the resume works. So, but yeah. Anyways, Devin. Oh my goodness. Uh, what a beauty. Couldn't act her way out of a box. Uh, but we weren't there for her, and that is okay. <laughs> yes. I, I will say I do like her character because so she I. does offer like a, a nice counterbalance to the scum rich because she is part of that elite. But she's yep. able to counterbalance to say that every not every. Every one of the elite rich is a scumbag. So I, I kind of like her character in the terms of that. I can't say the performance is anything to, to rave about. Um, <laughs> yeah. She also actually said in an interview regarding similar to Billy regarding while she was used to posing nude on camera. She had never had filmed sex uh, before on camera. So she was actually nervous about it as well. Uh, so when she found that that Billy was uh, nervous about it, well, he, uh, it kind of eased her into it. Um, I like I said, I think she's there to serve as the counterbalance to the rich elite, and I think it works well. Now we're gonna s- switch from Devin to the the girlfriend Heidi Kozak as Shauna. <laughs> let let your boy take over here. I, you, my brother, this is all you, my man. Outside of Ali with an eye and the Karate Kid, <laughs> she is the worst girlfriend in an eighties movie I have ever seen. Ever, she is. She is awful to Billy. She essentially, we know, like, we've seen in 80s movies, whether it's horror, whether it's, you know, all different types of genres. Like, you have that quintessential 80s girlfriend that is trying to use the boyfriend for to move up in the social status. And let's not make it that blunt. Shauna gives no fucks about Billy. <laughs> like, I don't think she, I don't, I don't think she, I don't even think she knows his last name. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. She's just like, um, why are we not going to this party? Why are we not going to that party? She comp- and she breaks up with him for that fact. Amazing, I, don't, yeah. I don't think she. I mean, I can't say she's not good because she does exactly what she needs to do. Is piss me <laughs> off. <laughs> um, but she actually did have a decent horror career in the eighties. Mm-hmm. She starred yeah. in. Uh, two big horror films, The Slumber Party Massacre Part 2. Yep. She also starred in Friday the 13th Part 7, New Blood. She was mm-hmm. actually, and this is, I wrote, uh, shout out to my wife who will be assisting in editing this podcast because she actually was on an episode of a 1980s show that involves the greatest television lawyer of all time, Matlock. Oh, wow. I didn't see that on the resume. Yeah, I, okay. I, I, I saw that and I'm like, you know what? You know what, Heidi Kozak? Yeah. You're a winner in my book. <laughs> Heidi Kozak, for all the bad work that yes. you did, we're still a fan. Of I got to so, say, Al, Allie with an eye is still, uh, is yeah. still the worst. Yeah, yeah. 
that that's oh my gosh oh yeah matlock dr quinn medicine woman oh what just I no- wiping it up with the 90s tv yeah what i noticed with a lot of these uh character actors is that a lot of them just went to tv and did their thing in television yeah which hey, which yeah do your thing man yes absolutely absolutely all right so let's move on to should we move on to the best friend or should we move on to dr cleveland Ooh, let's go to dave blanchard dave blanchard is a standout for me if that's right. who you're talking about my best friend go for it um da- <laughs> Shall we talk about Dave's introduction? Let's talk about how Dave gets involved in the movie. So we have uh, (laughs) (laughs) this sister. Pardon my, my, I just got to go back here for a second. Jenny. Jenny, I believe is her name. Jenny's just happened to be sitting there getting ready, you know, putting her dress on for some reason, um, unable to find her (laughs) earring. When all of a sudden, out of the corner of her closet, open closet, mind you, um, we see rustling. Uh, now, I genuinely thought this was going to be the first kill of the movie. And again, this is probably what within the first five minutes. Uh, and I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't have that in my notes, but there is essentially only one kill in the entire movie, yes. which, is, which kind of makes this quite effective yeah. for yeah. keeping us engaged without any kills. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I thought Jenny was about to bite. The, I thought she's the first one, first mm. one to go. I was like, okay, it's cool. Good way to start the movie. Uh, and instead, we're introduced to David Blanchard, her former ex boyfriend, who. Uh, is a I don't even want to call him a conspiracy theorist because let's be honest he was actually, right he was right yeah. um, and he essentially is, is stalking Jenny after she's broken up with him to try to prove that they're in some cult or some again society uh, and he is so over the top three words uh, I would say three used I would three words I would use to describe David is um, always sweaty. <laughs> and anxious. <laughs> I, I I wrote down about the sweat. He looked like he just uh he looked like Patrick Ewing after two quarters in a Nick game. <laughs> I'm like, I know it was hot in California. It couldn't be that hot. That guy was drenched in sweat for, for two hours that he was they're, on They're at the pier and he looks like he just ran a marathon to tell Billy that he's got these tapes. Mind you. The man carries a wonderful suitcase, a great audio yes. suitcase. So bravo to you, Mr. Blanchard. Uh, but yeah, I think that he he's the, okay, I'm not going to say he's the standout. He is, he's the piece de resistance because when that finale happens, he's right at the forefront of it. And what was once Billy becomes a shell of Billy. Um, or sorry, not a Billy, of, of Blanchard. Sorry, of Blanchard. And yeah, man, uh, he, he was one of my favorites. Just just the the neuroticism and like unable to catch his breath and, and just like we at the end of the movie, you know that he's right. But the entire time you're doubting him uh, yep. about the fact that like, oh, he might actually be nuts. Right. So. So I, I, w- I want to piggyback off that. And I agree with you one thousand percent. I want I, I wrote down this interesting analogy so david when you first meet him reminds me of and this is not an 80s tv show but it reminds me of the first time you meet chuck bass on gossip girl okay chuck chuck bass is a complete creep and there there is no redeeming qualities for him but as the show progresses you're like wait a minute like chuck bass is actually a good guy yeah that's how i felt about david like this guy is literally creeping on this this girl just because she doesn't want to be with him anymore. But then as yeah. the movie progresses, you find out, I'm like, yo, this guy is right. 
shout out he probably didn't believe jfk was assassinated by by uh lee harvey oswald yep he yep. probably believes that kubrick set up the moon landing <laughs> and you know what i'm all, i'm all fucking here for it man i'm all fucking here for it david blanchard was an icon in conspiracy theoryism is that a word yes anyway if he was still around he'd probably have a conspiracy theory podcast today exactly so. exactly I, exactly I, and we'd probably I, be guests I, I was about to say that absolutely <laughs> The other best friend that I wanted to talk about was Milo. Milo. I do apologize. I got the two of them confused there. Milo. Let's so, mention Milo. I'll what say up, this. Like, I I think he's a very good pal, man. He knows what's going on, and he just stays true to Bill. And, I'm, and I got I to gotta give him credit for that. And it's played by Evan Richards, who's also known for playing uh, Bill Preston Esquire in the Bill and Ted uh, TV show from the 90s. Correct. Um, as a character, I want him in my corner. I think I think we could get shit done if he's in my corner. If we can deal with that, I think we could deal with anything. What what, what do you think? You're never really a best friend with somebody until you leave an inflatable sex doll in their Jeep. Mm-hmm. And uh, to my best friend, Michael Terenzo, and, and he knows that, that we're filming this today. Um, for, and this is a completely off script and off topic. <laughs> Uh, for his 19th birthday, we went out and bought him. I went out and bought him. There was no we. I'm, I'm, I'm a sicko. Went out and bought him an inflatable sex doll, and we left it in the kitchen of our dorm room for him and his father to walk into on their 19th birthday. Um, and that's that's the power of friendship, folks. That's the power of friendship. When somebody is down on their luck or celebrating a big, uh, a big milestone, uh, nothing says I love you like uh, putting a sex toy right in the middle of an uncomfortable spot to make them feel even more uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, yeah, Milo, Milo's all over the place, but like Milo is just this like undying love for Billy. Um, that literally takes him into the finale where uh, the, the best part was, I, I think involving Milo was, uh, what's the, the girl's name? Oh my gosh. Sorry. I'm having a brain fart here. Clarissa? Uh, Clarissa's yeah. mother where he brings Clarissa's mother to the outside of the house for the party. And I suppose that she eats the police officer, uh, which again is never really explained. doesn't need to be. doesn't we matter. Just leave it up to yeah. the imagination. Uh, and then Milo's goes in, literally goes in guns a blazing into uh, the, we'll call it uh shunting uh, party. And he's there. He's there to save Billy and he's going out. He's going out, whether Billy's coming with him. Right. And uh, it's great. It's great. So, yeah, I'm with you. I I I I like him. I, it's always good to see a movie that has a good best friend of him and not <laughs> someone that's trying to be conniving. Uh, yep. Yeah, so I I definitely dig him. All right, let's move on to Ben Slack as Doctor Cleveland. So, um, the scenes where Billy has these therapy sessions weren't originally in the script, so they were added during production to help strengthen the narrative of the movie. Um, he's done a lot of television, including episodes of Murder She Wrote. Uh, which is a very, very big show in the 80s and 90s. Um, as a character, meh. Eh, yeah, he's there to do what he does. I think the the funniest aspect of, of him on screen is when he has the, the dog collar uh, pole, and he's basically just chasing Billy up a set of stairs. Uh, but, like, we see... <laughs> if you go over and rewatch this, you'll see his shadow coming up the stairs. What would appear to be maybe, like... 10 to 15 feet away and it still takes his character dr cleveland about 45 <laughs> seconds to up the stairs. i was like 
I'm okay. I'm here for it. But suspension of disbelief. Suspension of disbelief. And like he's he's the most over the top, I think, out of anybody in, in the movie. Uh, and sells it well. He, he was also on, uh, I, I recognized him and I actually went digging here. Uh, he was in a, in a series regular on Star Trek: The New Generation. Back oh, in the was 90s. he? I never yeah. saw that series. Yeah, no, I, I like. I think I only knew that because of um, uh, the character that he played. That was did something astronomical. Again, like I, I barely remember the show itself, but that's where I recognized him from. Ironically enough, was, oh, that's uh, awesome. Was uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation? So, sadly, what? passed away in two thousand four. Oh, God that's bless. God bless you, Ben Slack. What, what do we think of Ted Ferguson, Ben Meyerson? <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Beverly Hills, that idea of, of that, um, you know, upper class society um, kid who's living off dad's trust fund mm-hmm. plays it to a T, plays it to a T. Uh, over the top, completely. Actually, this brings me to my favorite point, And this was my laugh out loud moment. This was my laugh out loud moment during the movie. Um, Ted Ferguson's first move in the fight that he has with Billy is a roundhouse kick and a perfectly placed roundhouse kick, mind you, that he lands right on Billy's chin. And I was like, yo, shit, like Ted didn't come to fuck around. Ted's going to kill Billy. Do you, <laughs> do you think that Ted was trained at the Cobra Kai dojo? I do, I do, especially being in Beverly Hills, especially being in Beverly Hills. So, but it is a perfectly timed roundhouse kick, and he landed square on Billy's stupid face. <laughs> and I and I do agree with the he is a quintessential like douchebag of the of the rich elite in the eighties. Like yep. the, he play, he plays his role to a T, very very minor role, but I think he plays it well, and it kind of leads to that fun line to end the movie. Yeah. Or I guess we have an internship opened up. <laughs> um, so I love that there's a very dark comedy to this movie that really adds to the effectiveness. Um, also, he was also, outside of this movie, he was also in Knocked Up. So that's... Like, Knocked Up with uh, uh, Seth, 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 Rogen? Seth Rogen? yep. Really? Yeah. Um, huh. So yeah, be on the lookout for uh, Ben Mayerson in Knocked Up next time you see it. And um. I only have a few more characters to go through here. Uh, we're finishing off with Someone that you started talking about before, Patrice Jennings as Jenny Whitney, the sister. Yes. Oh, yes. Jenny, um, hey, she 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 reads her lines and she does what she's told. Yep. Uh, very weird, uncomfortable moment where uh, Jenny's getting a massage from um, from her father. Yes. Uh, while I believe in her bra and panties. Again, not sure what the family dynamic is over at the um, Whitney House. At the Whitney House, yep. but nevertheless, you know, it's Beverly Hills. So, <laughs> and ironically, um, she's also known for being on Beverly Hills Nine Hundred Two One Zero. Wow! Yeah, that's a full circle moment again here on Chalk Talk. Folks. Yeah, so I I agree with you everything there, and then we finishing off with Charles Lucia as Jim Whitney. Listen, all I gotta say is all I remember about this character is the line, "You were right, Billy. I'm a butthead." Yep. That's, yep, that's, that's honestly all I all I got to say. <laughs> um, is there any other character you want to touch on before we move on? No, I think we touched upon the big ones. Um, the the roundhouse kick with uh, with Ted is is the thing that killed me. And I actually literally wrote it in my notes that I wanted to bring attention to it because it was brilliant and it caught me off guard to a point where like I had a belly laugh, which I wasn't <laughs> expecting. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I touched upon everybody. I think that uh, you know everybody does what they're told and and. and Again, it's a it's a product of of, of 80s uh, shock horror, man. So they the lines been... are meant to be. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say they understood the assignment. Yes, they understood the assignment. 
and and the lines are meant to be delivered with ultimate cheese and and again like you said that like sense of black comedy uh is great i think it's phenomenal in it so awesome all right so we move on to Next category will be Grundlefly's Cocoon. Here we break down the practical and visual effects of the film. Uh, and there, and here we go. So the, the practical effects were completed by Screaming Mad George. Um, surrealistic is what they call their makeup. Uh, and they were suggested uh, for the production of the film by Japanese producers, by the film's Japanese producers. Uh, Yuzana and Screaming Mad George use Salvador Dali's autumn cannibalism and soft construction with boiled beans uh, as inspiration. Uh, while filming the shunting scene we're about to talk to, Brian Yuzana purposely avoided using any blood, fearing backlash for the MPAA. Shout out for him thinking that's what was going to be the problem. <laughs> so, all right. So, uh, listen. I'll I'll kick this off by saying, not only are these the most pra- these practical effects the most underrated of the eighties, but I think it's right up there with the flying the thing as some of the best in the era. I I'm like I was in awe with what I was watching. What What was your first thoughts that you recently just saw when this whole when all the bodies started molding together? So, to, I'm gonna start off by saying this. So, like when we first get our our scenes with. Uh, Jenny being stalked by David, and then like some of the bodies start popping up. Um, like the, the the class president guy whose name eludes me right now. Like I was like, this is for sure like a, a horror slasher film where they're killing off teenagers. Okay, mm-hmm. that last twenty minutes where it turns into like shock rock body gore. The 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 practical effects are are, are going a hundred miles an hour. I was very impressed because it wasn't what I was expecting, but at the same time, it's like a no, like you you understand the the goal, and you said this best actually when you're relating it to the fly. The goal was to be as grotesque, and again, mind you, no no blood in the scene, um, as grotesque and um, in your face as possible, but to be able to visually understand it. And I think that that not having any blood in the scene worked to its advantage. I agree. Be- because it really would have actually been hard to differentiate and the kind of creases and curves when you see David Blanchard's body essentially turn into this kind of pile of mush, right? So again, and I, I think that the red lighting in the uh, in the room where they're actually doing the shunting um, is is kind of ironic. It's again, it's like a red, like red, red orange kind of undertone. Um, but yeah, man, like the practical effects are are up there. Like I gotta give these guys credit for for the budget that they had, which was two million dollars, which was clearly a spent a lot at the end there yeah um it's good it's a fun movie it, it's it's a it's definitely a rewatchable guys if, if you have not seen this movie uh i think you'll be in shock and awe on the first time you see it but like it's not that it's not palatable it's just it'll be fun to rewatch again just for that last 20 minutes i i agree because listen this is blasphemy i i think the fly is a better movie but i think I am more grossed out by the things in the fly than mm-hmm. I am in this last 20, 30 minutes in society. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That lends a more rewatchability factor to society because of that. Yeah. Um, Grundlefly is like one of the best usage of practical effects, but my God, is it, it the transition to transformation is, is tough to watch. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you kind of nailed it. Like this, I think also the blood not being included just, put focus on what is going on and essentially yeah. the allegory that I mentioned before. You're the yep. rich as they are known for suck the life out of the poor. And, <laughs> yeah. and Brian decided to do this in the most 
realistic possible way possible if that's the way you want to look at it yeah um it's and he also before that scene he actually put a sign on the soundstage door that read abandon all hope ye who enter here um i i want to finish off with this because that scene starts off and it's like what 20 people just molded together yeah and it also has that fight at the end where Billy just grabs, puts his hand inside his uh his asshole. His asshole. He goes, just, he goes digging. He goes digging like a truffle pig, I, man. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it, it's 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 pretty crazy. Um, it and it sucks because we can't even give we can't even give it a, a service of no. describing it, and I don't think no. I want to because I think I this is to. I think this is something that people need to see. Yep. Uh, we're we're talking about it with praise because I think it deserves it for the efforts. <laughs> just think about the fact that like. And my wife, who shockingly, I get, I made her watches with me in my second round. She loved it, and she, the first thing she was like, "Oh my god, that's actually really impressive." And I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> uh, that is impressive." Was if they ever, and I don't think they'll ever remake this, but if they ever do, that that scene would be CGI. Funny. They were, they were, and I think I know where you're going. That there uh, was a, a sequel planned in 2013, right? Yep. Oh man, and if I, I started digging. Brian Usna is still trying to get this thing going. Body modifications, society two. Could you imagine if this was something that got released now after all of these years? With the way social media reacts to things, yep. I don't think this would work. I do agree. I think that we've we've gotten a little soft. Um, but that's a, that's a topic for another yes, uh, another podcast or person perhaps a private conversation yes. um but did you hear about the structure and basically the plot for this society um to uh society no no i just knew it was i knew it was in the works kind of in the works but yeah. what, what what's what would be the premise um so I, I i was reading through two separate things here so empire did something on it which which didn't really have a hell of a lot uh of detail um but <laughs> they were saying that it was going to still basically take place in Los Angeles or Hollywood, um, but that it would be a little bit more into go a little bit more into the dark mutant rich secret shenanigans uh, that actually are more in the underlying nightclub and bar scene. I'm like, ooh, that has my attention. I would love to see that. But again, I think if you're going full balls to the wall, like what the last 20 minutes of this movie has. This is something that just gets buried. Absolutely buried. And something that I think we should touch on is the fact that I don't think this was done for shock value. I think this actually has a point to the movie. I think if it's done now, if we do get a sequel, it's going to be more on like, how can I top what I did in 1989? And that will come off more disingenuous than what we got here. So I hope it never happens. But if it does, my guess is probably going to be one of those movies that ends up on Shudder. Yeah. That's all I can see. Yeah, and and you know, I I think people would probably fans of the movie would probably support it, but I know I know how these things go, and I'm sure you do too. It's yeah. it's uh, it may it may not get. War- I'm surprised this movie hasn't been you know. Canceled. I'm surprised that this is even this isn't even on Shutter. It is on Shutter. It, is it on Shutter? Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I wish I'd have known that because I would have. Oh man. So okay. you could you can actually watch it on Shutter for anyone that actually will look out to to check this out. You can watch it two ways. You can watch it on the Joe Bob, the last drive-in with Joe Bob actual episode of Society that has the the commentary with Joe Bob, 
or you can just watch it on its own on on Shutter. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. I wish I had known that. I would have went and watched on that. I watched on my on my iPad on on Apple TV. But That's, um. Yeah. So if you for anyone that has Shutter, you definitely can find it there. It's uh. It didn't even pop up on my search because that was instantly it went right to Apple TV for me. Huh. Interesting. Guys, uh, support Shutter. Yes. Your membership, please. Get I. <sighs> I will never not support Shutter, especially for the fact that it's five dollars and 99 cents save save a dollar 50 a week and yep. you have your shutter membership this Absolutely. streaming service deserves to be around it's it's one of it's the quintessential horror streaming service and i think everyone needs to have it so absolutely but yeah absolutely. uh one more last bit on the on the effects of the f- the film the scene with jenny in the shower <laughs> where her body distorts so that was actually added during the production, because Yuzano felt another shocking scene was needed earlier in the film, I actually oh, saw. I actually thought I was like, "What the fuck was going on there?" So I, but I was completely under the impression that when then that shower scene's taking place, that um, we were going to get like because this is this is prior to the sex scene with Clarissa and Billy, right? Is that right? Yes. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. So I was like, "Oh wow! Like we're going to see this brother creepily come in on his sister in the shower. And, like this is going to be like our first frontal scene, if if there's going to be any." Um, but man, that reveal of it just basically being her and like she freaks out on Billy, and it looks like he's having like almost like a like a psychotic episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, be- I had a belly laugh, a complete belly laugh. But Jenny's reaction is what makes it so much funnier because the editing between the the camera panning up where the effects and essentially the body morphing is happening and then when he actually opens the door the editing is awful between those two scenes like awful in a good way like awful in a funny way so that when the door opens it's like not meshed and edited together well um and then again you just you see that it's him I don't, we don't know. It, it, it's him seeing what he wants to see or what his brain's seeing, right? Yeah. So it's it's funny. It's very good. Again, that was one of those scenes that, that I had a good chuckle. It reminds me of uh, of you in Batman Returns where, talking about really bad edited scenes, where um, Bruce Wayne is, well, Batman is revealing himself to, to Selina Kyle and he rips off his mask and he has the makeup on his eyes. And then they do a really bad edit of him taking off his mask with no makeup on his eyes. <laughs> it, it's it's a very Batman and Batman Returns have some interesting edits. So yeah, they, they, I got a good chuckle out of that too. And there was a different ending. Did you read up on what the ending was originally no, supposed to be? Yeah. yeah. So the original script had a different finale where the secret society was revealed as a cult that was out to sacrifice Billy for its own crazy reasons. Brian. Brian Usner, however, wanted a much more fantastic revelation, so he and makeup artist Screaming Mad George came up with the idea of society being monster creatures who ate the lower class. Uh, I, I am glad that they made that change. Same, same. same. I think I think it suits it suits the the story that they're trying to tell. <laughs> and then our last two categories here: sleeping with Voorhees, looking at the best worst kill in the film. Um, there's only one. So there's only one, and it's yep. a damn good one. Uh. So Tim Bartell's acting during that scene was so disturbing that Dr- Brian Uzana had to scale it back in editing to make it less intense. Um, what do you what do you think about that death as a whole? As a whole, oh man, um, figuratively, I mean, figuratively and literally. I, well said, sir. Well said. <laughs> so 
Sorry, what actor were you talking about? Who? So that is uh, David. David. David's acting. Oh yeah. Sorry, my bad. Sorry, I was looking at. Uh, I wasn't looking at his actual name there. Yeah. Sorry, Tim Bartell. Yeah. Um. Yeah, man. I mean, that's that's. that's I'm saying what um what what your eyes are watching at times just seems so like out to left field that uh the kill itself as we start to see david's body just turn into the basically like a um a rubberized yeah. shell of himself uh it's i mean it's not gory it's just like so grotesque but it's brilliant in its execution uh especially as all of them basically start to like mold their arms and then mold their faces in them right so again guys i don't want to give away too much because i would love for all you guys to go watch this if you haven't seen it because it's phenomenal like yes. i genuinely enjoy this movie so same and yeah i agree uh we'll say that it was disturbing we'll say that it was grotesque we'll say that it was um unique but we'll also say watch it because i think it's yeah. absolutely one of the best sequences in a horror film in the 80s yeah, and then absolutely. that leaves us on our final category one good scare which is our final thoughts on the film kurt as we wrap up this first episode what are your thoughts on society i think it's easy to see how society has this cult following um and it's really it's really gained traction uh in the 16 years since it's come out on blu-ray and dvd now i say that because we do know that it came out and it had its theatrical release but it didn't really make a splash or at least we, we can't find numbers to say that it made a splash at the box office but for a film to uh a have this type of recognition um uh throughout like the horror community especially with like you and i again this is a, a film that i knew about but i had not experienced yet and it has gotten its props and it's gotten its praise on things like joe bob and and in search of darkness and um yeah i i think that there's a reason why films like this kind of linger in like the horror subconscious uh and it's because they do something inside of the box right like it's not it comes off as what might be your typical slasher at first uh and then completely throws you uh to the to the side and says no like this is actually like the point that we're trying to make and i love it and, and, and even to hear you say that like the ending was completely redone by by uh by brian usna uh the director like yeah i think that this fits and i and i think that if it sticks with its original ending it does not have the status that yep. it has today i so. agree and, and yeah i second everything you said i think this movie it holds a special place for me just because where I found it, I discovered it during early days of COVID, like, you know, when we're looking for things to do and then, you know, everything about it, every, everyone that hyped it for me just paid off with that final 20, 30 minutes. And as yeah. a movie, I just, I have a great time with it. And that's one of the main reasons that outside of us showing our love for the genre and the eighties horror as a whole, I think, there is a giant disconnect with horror fans or just fans in general right now. And the idea that the only good horror is elevated horror is so incorrect. There is go ahead. And this is no, no, this is what we were, you and I were talking about last week, man. We were talking about this exact same thing. Elevated horror is wonderful. I love it. But quintessentially, this is the type of horror that has always drawn me to the genre, same. which is, out of the box, unexpected, um, completely obtuse, and like goes 
bonkers with its execution and whatever story it's trying to tell, right? And I think that is uh, that that's that's the gist of the 1980s horror genre. And this is again why you and I are doing this, man. Like this is this is a great movie to start off this yep. entire show, uh, buddy. So. I agree. This is. Uh... This is a great one to start, but that doesn't mean that we are not going to have doozies coming oh. up. Oh, so absolutely. And, and we, looking at the schedule. <laughs> we actually are going to go on a little John Carpenter run Ooh. in the next few months. So bringing up to get you guys excited as to what's coming up, we are going to do in April, May, and June, and I'll tease July in a few months. In April, we are covering John Carpenter's They Live. In May, we are car- covering John Carpenter's The Thing. In June, we are covering John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, a movie that I avoided for a long time, and I absolutely adore it, despite the fact that it has one of the worst ensembles in a horror movie. We are. It, I always look at that movie, and I'm like, the guy with the stash, why can't we just get Tom Atkins? <laughs> Right, right. Tom Hack is just here, just hanging out. Right. But yeah, this this was a great way to start. I'm glad we got to, got able to talk about this movie today. Absolutely. Kurt, pleasure. Do hey, you boy. have any socials or anything you want to plug before we end, finish off? Yeah, guys. Um, I am a part of uh, the League of Cinephiles uh, with Dave here. We do uh, the critic circle as well, guys. We're we're doing a lot of stuff as the um, Oscars are ramping up. I believe we're only a week away. A Two week away. Week. No, a week, a week away. today. Oh my God. Look at that. A week away. Um, and then over at the top five film dive, guys, that is my homestead. So you guys can find me on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, and of course, on social media, that is where you can uh, reach out. You can uh, get in touch with me uh, and shoot the shit. Uh, I'm always looking for new guests on the show. So, Dave, how about yourself? Awesome. So you can find me at Real Talk Inc. I. Uh, I do a lot. <laughs> um, I have a podcast, another podcast called Real Chronicles that we do weekly. Yep. We check, check it out, guys. I uh, also am. If you want to check out my film reviews, you can find my profile on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, you can check out my reviews on RealTalking.com. Uh, good, good segue. We are actually recording our final Oscar predictions today, so that's going to be a bloodbath. And mm-hmm. I can't wait. Speaking of bloodbath, next month's They Live will mm-hmm. be quite the bloodbath mm-hmm. and a great movie to discuss in the current time because that movie is as relevant today as it was in 1987. So, 100%. all right. So, with that being said, until next month, see you at the video store, kids. Mm-hmm.